Metropolis is a seminal piece of science fiction, and it is the first silent movie that we've ever discussed on the Atomic Cinema Experiment. Join us as we break down the film's themes and marvel at its sheer ambition. Welcome everyone to the Atomic Cinema Experiment. I am Peter and joining me as always as Fräulein Tara. Greetings. To- oh wait, wait. Guten Tag. <laughs> there you go, very good, very good. <laughs> this is a science fiction movie podcast we get together uh, we talk about a sci-fi movie and we're doing a german film if that wasn't obvious from the uh the opening but this is going to be metropolis which was the patreon vote winner uh last time there was a vote so uh this is the oldest film we've ever reviewed and will probably always be the oldest film we ever review unless we do like a collection of shorts or something that came before this but you know this is 1927 this is Fritz Lang's Metropolis. So we're going to talk about Before it. Before even the first Frankenstein movie. Before talkies. Uh, that's not true. Oh, there's another one? There's a Frankenstein. I'm sure there's a silent Frankenstein movie before the 1931 one. Oh. I'm sure there is. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, positive, but yes. Uh, so we'll start spoiler free as we always do. We'll give you a warning before we go into spoilers. Uh, 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 so it's almost a daunting task like you know like here here's the first proper big like extravagant science fiction film uh mm-hmm. and there's a lot going into this uh it's, it's one of those things where you know as we're going to talk about this i'm sure we're going to talk about things that are impressive for the time because it's 1927 and it's just try it's like it's aiming high it's taking some big swings for 1927 it absolutely is but at the same time yeah we're, we'll you know we'll say ah obviously some of these effects are a little bit dated <laughs> because you know they're very simple and uh it's just a crossfade to show this or something like that um and it was a silent film in fact this is the first time we've ever done a silent film on the show so that'll be interesting to talk about in fact it's one of the I don't know. I've only seen like maybe a handful of silent films. I think you know this is like one of maybe four or five that I've seen. You know, which I I had seen this before. This was my second time watching it, but this was for you your first time. Yes, I've dabbled in silent film as well. I wouldn't say I'm like a student. I was never a student of film like you were. So maybe I'm sure there's some ones that I've missed. But I have watched uh, I've watched a Faust movie. Mm-hmm which was silent. I think that was also German, but it wasn't Fritz Lang. <laughs> yeah, I, I've i seen and Nosferatu. I've seen Quiet in the Western Front, which was silent, and I've seen the talkie version of it. Yeah, Nosferatu, which is also German, funnily enough. Uh, I've seen Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and then maybe a couple of Chaplin movies. Like That's basically it. That's yeah, like I've my... only really seen clips. I've never seen any actual Chaplin so, films. So, that's the extent of my silent sort of uh, repertoire. So, you know, it's daunting when you look at this movie and it's like two and a half hours long. Uh, these days, anyway, now that it's mostly back to the original cut, mostly there's still one scene that's missing. And uh, if you watch the new restored version, it just has to tell you what happens in it. Because unfortunately, it's, you can't just get away with not telling the audience because it's kind of a prominent moment. You know, something significant changes in the scene. So it'd be very confusing <laughs> if they didn't tell you. Um, but yeah, so it's a very interesting viewing experience because in like 2008, they found uh, basically a, a print of the longer cut, the, the original Fritz Lang cut. 
which is two and a half hours long and reinserted it into the movie but this was like 16 millimeter it was in rough shape whereas because the rest of the film which obviously it's still from 1927 so it can only look so good but it does look very good it looks like restored you know it looks great in uh, 1080p or whatever i don't know if there's a 4k version yet it's beautiful looking yeah yeah but it's it's very pretty it's very detailed Uh, and then you you, you switch to the 16 millimeter footage of the, the the clips and bits that were missing and it's like very noticeable uh, part of its letterbox that uh, it's very scratchy all the rest of it um almost to the point where i wish like the blu-ray or the criterion app or whatever you're using to watch this now i do wish for interest sake you could watch the shorter version as well that was preserved just so you could watch the the shorter cut that is completely intact uh and its glory just just, just you know what i think we should do for comparison yes i think they should just give everything to peter jackson and say hey do your thing <laughs> make this look good <laughs> no i don't agree with that but that's i i, I don't want them tampering with like you know <laughs> like clean it up as best you can but no no tampering no colorization i don't just want any of that it an option no he won't colorize it just restore it okay okay um well a lot of work did get done to this it's not like they didn't do anything you know there's, sure. there's a lot of work in fact on the subject uh as of january 1st which was yesterday at the time of recording this film is public domain uh so odd, oddly Let's timed make metropolis movie <laughs> oddly timed obviously this fancy new restoration isn't because it's only from 2010 but the original version is public domain and you can you can yeah write something or make a sequel if you want and no one can stop you because <laughs> because it's public domain baby that's what it means so so also, 100 years is not the cutoff then no i guess it must be 95 because or 94 yeah, 27 more years yeah something like that i don't know it used to be less and then disney lawyers extended it in the 90s because they were worried about mickey mouse going public domain but it's coming up <laughs> it's coming up you can't outrun the law disney <laughs> um so that's just interesting charlotte combs also went public domain uh oh yesterday you get sherlock holmes blood and honey soon you're gonna get sherlock holmes <laughs> everywhere because everyone can do sherlock holmes now um as always anything that was created a little bit later that you don't realize was a later creation isn't public domain yet you know because the example I always makes because i know more about it is like you know, when batman and superman go public domain in like you know 15 years or whatever it is uh yeah they're public domain but a lot of their villains didn't come till later you know so some of the ideas like you know kryptonite for example was a good bit later than superman's creation so you can't just use everything but it's interesting it's an interesting little thing uh so it just happens to so be superman started with zero weaknesses and then writers were like well this is a little boring well he also started with like almost none of his powers like he was just strong and could jump <laughs> like like the flight the the heat vision all that stuff came later as well was he alien I think he was still alien, yeah. As many else as I've read that, that Action Comics, like, 38 or whatever it is. No, no, it's Action Comics 1. Yeah, it's Action Comics 1. It's 1938, it's Action Comics 1. and then, Over the car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Batman, on the other hand, was Detective Comics 27. He wasn't there at the start of Detective Comics. This is getting way off topic. But, we're, you know, like, this is the context of which we're reviewing this, is that it's just went public domain. So that's how old the movie is. And it's also kind of... But on the flip side of that, it's also how young the medium of film is that we're only just hitting that point with film. And this is, you know, obviously film started before this and there's short films and there's, you know, even Nosferatu that we brought up as an earlier 20s film. But, you know, this really is like 
for for us in terms of what we, we like in cinema, it's very much the 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 birth, or even you know, it's just it's the pre-birth. It's the <laughs> the conception Ew. of cinema. <laughs> the water breaking <laughs> uh, you know but in a lot of ways like if, if you if you think of like uh when talkies you know when when audio like sort of finally fully formed what cinema was uh which actually was i think it was the same i think it was 1927 as well the jazz singer came out maybe a year later but uh that in many ways fully formed the baby of cinema so in, in a way silent film does feel like a slightly like just just before it really came into what it was but uh so a couple of quick things about silent film, uh, just to get this out of the way. Um, so silent film was shot at 16 frames per second, but was still shown at 24 frames per second, usually. And that's what we're watching it in now. And that's why all silent films look too quick. They're all looking like they're in quick motion. And the reason for that was basically that film costs a lot of money. You know, the, the reels of film, so you, you try to save money where you can. And 16 frames is kind of seen as on the threshold of what the human eye will accept as motion. You know, anything less than that, then it starts to just look a series of images as opposed to actual video. So the idea was is that you shoot at 16 frames per second and then you speed it up to showing it at 24 frames per second. So it looks smoother because you're showing 24 frames per second, but you're showing it quicker than it was actually recorded. So you're getting this quick thing. And the only reason, so they thought that was acceptable and the people wouldn't care that much. And the only reason why it became normal speed at some point was because of sound. Because if you show it too quick with sound, then everyone will sound like a chipmunk. <laughs> and it'll sound stupid. So there was sound that said, no, this has to run at like at correct speed. And that's when recording at 24 frames per second became the standard. And 24 frames per second is still the standard 100 years later. So there's your history lesson. For, Very cool. Yeah, so that's that's why. So yeah, uh, the premise of Metropolis is a city of Metropolis. Metropolis also means city, but here it seems to also be the name of the city, I think. And we have the rich man who built the city, who is the, the head of the city. Uh, we have his son, who is this rich boy who kind of becomes aware that the poor who are working in the, the underground and the lower sections of the city are having a rough time. He falls in love with a woman who's down there and... You know, like, well, all of the fact that the city might be a little futuristic, where's the sci-fi part? Oh, there's also a mad inventor who's building a robot. <laughs> That's also going on. And that comes into play as well. Uh, and this is like a future dystopia kind of world. Yeah, yeah. And you sort of, there's, you know, obviously it looks of its time, but there's also, there's one particular moment where you're just looking at the city, and it's obviously all these miniatures of the buildings and stuff, but they've got like, you know, lights and neon signs or something that's akin to that anyway and it's like yeah this is just like a 1927 version of like a shot of like blade runner city that's that's all mm -hmm. it is it's just that but like what they could achieve in 1927 and in that, in that case in that sense it looks very kind of cool and it's like oh uh, and it's got a mixture of like a modern metropolis but also looks just like art deco and like gothic sort of like sort of stylings put into some of the decor and like the the design of it so mm -hmm. it's got kind of an interesting thing in fact do you know what I noticed watching it this time? Is how much of an influence it might have had in Batman the Animated Series. Uh, it looks very Gotham in some areas. It, it looks very Gotham. And not only that, like, there's a henchman for the for the, the dad. You know, the, the, so, uh, Joe, Joe Frederson, yeah. So he's got a henchman. So Joe, Joe Frederson is the rich man who built the city. And he's got a henchman named the Thin Man. His hat, 
I swear the Joker's wearing that exact hat in Batman the Animated Series, like, a lot. And there's even moments in this where he felt kind of jokery because he's kind of skinny and he's got he's sort of grinning at people and stuff. He, yeah. He's got, yeah. You know he's evil when you look at him. He's got, like, a really gaunt face, but, like, he's mm-hmm. long and lean. And, I mean, he's described as the thin man, but he's wearing a lot of heavy stuff, so it's kind of hard to see if he's actually thin. But, like, he does look gaunt in the face, and he's got, like, a weird sinister smile thing going on to him also absolutely uh and then there's actually some themes in this that this is the first because i watched it for the first time like maybe a decade or 15 years ago or something like that uh this is the first time i've watched it since i i've seen twin peaks and specifically season three of twin peaks and there were some thematic things popping up in this that i went oh i think david lynch is a fan of metropolis which would make sense because he's a you know he's a film guy honestly there's a lot of things i saw when i watched this movie for the first time today <laughs> there's a lot oh. of, okay yeah i know it came first but like there's a lot of a lot of things oh sure this. <laughs> oh i mean hell we can even sort of say there's some terminator th- things in this we can see there's, there's... a matrix in it yeah like the, there's Blade those... runner for sure yeah yeah it very much is like the grandfather of a lot of like of things um but I think a lot of those things like are kind of very on the surface. But the the, the Twin Peaks one was, was kind of wowing me because I'm like, oh shit, this is more of a deep cut. I I, I was not expecting this. So I was getting kind of wowed by it. Uh, I've never seen Twin Peaks, so I can't be here to say yes. <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> just assume I'm correct, Tara. <laughs> <laughs> well, I assume so, but like, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I'm anyway, sure other people out there are excited about this. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'll talk a bit more about that more in spoilers, but uh, Tara, what did you yeah. think of Metropolis? Um, honestly, like, I was kind of blown away by it, like, from the beginning. I thought it was, like, visually just uh, next level. Uh, I mean, obviously, for the time, everything kind of looks, um, yeah, it looks like old future, but I like that look of that, uh, I mean, I enjoy retro futurism in, in general, but this does feel like it's, um, something more special than that like it is its own thing um there's clearly a lot of influence that this movie has had on other films but it's still very unique to look at like um even the opening shot of like the workers and stuff and they're marching towards work and the other ones are marching towards home and uh, like they have to say so much through images that everything's hyper exaggerated but I, I love it. You know, I love the way that looks. So Yeah, it's a, sh- um, it's a shift change. So, yeah, it's like some are going to work, some are coming. Because I guess it literally starts with the, like, the steam, like, klaxon thing going off to be like, hey, shift change. Like, yeah, you know, swap, swap in and out. Yeah, it's so, it, it's, you know, it definitely comes from a time of industrialization and, like, the uh, the allure of technology and the the class systems like there's just so much happening in the movie uh that you pick up on right away with you know minimal dialogue <laughs> um and but it's because of that hyper exaggeration everything looks is so pretty to look at or so um um interesting to look at and analyze and yeah i feel like i'm watching an opera when i watch it <laughs> yeah i it loved a- it though I, I really did yeah there's a lot of extras there's you know like it's, it's funny because I think like there's some things that feel still ahead of the time and then there's obviously other things that do feel dated just because, yeah, technology's moved forward or whatever. But like, it's, a, it's just a really interesting mixture because when you watch it, there's an equal number of things that feel like, okay, we've moved forward with technology in this way, we've evolved how we tell this kind of story this way, 
you know, this character's still kind of a damsel. I mean, she's important, but she's still kind of a damsel in key scenes and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's other elements that feel like they're thinking so far ahead. Like, they're like, I can't imagine that someone in 1927 was was thinking about science fiction this way and thinking about a story in this way. It, it is really this weird meeting of old and new where, like you say, part of that feeling like an opera is because it is pulling on some tropes and uh, there's a quote in the Wikipedia page about how at the time like the reception wasn't that strong and H.G. Wells called it trite. <laughs> Did not like it. Um, wow, that's surprising. And it's it's just, it's kind of funny to think that, yeah, there, there's some things about it that even at the time might have felt a little like classical, but then there's other parts of it that feel super, like, you know, thoughtful and, like, yeah, you know. Do you think because at that time everyone was so anti-communism that maybe there's also a bit of that, mm, we don't like this? It's interesting you say that because it does also say that, there, that it was criticized for having a communist message. Yeah, because I was picking up on this, like, wow, this is, like, a very relevant message for today, especially with younger generations um, sort of seeing the appeal of socialism and this message here of like the working class and how, you know, we're all just caught in this machine, um, <clears throat> which can literally kill us. And like, that's our whole point of living is just to give other people, you know, um, a paradise to live in. So like, there's, there's a lot of things here that I think would speak to, you know, the generation that came a hundred years from this film. Yeah, it's actually kind of shocking just how relevant it still is. I mean, this is, if you want to boil it down, it's a story of the one percenters and the working class yeah. finally kind of conflicting in something. And, like, that is still relevant. It's, it's, it, it's the fact that it's sad how relevant it still is. <laughs> so all this time later. Isn't that a message that comes up a lot in our uh, reviews when we review older stuff? I know. <laughs> no one's learned that goddamn thing. God damn it. <laughs> it's funny how you know you could say you can release this or make a remake of this so that it you know it'll it'll speak to the 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 people of today but the only reason they would make a remake of it is like oh that's a name you recognize and we're gonna put chris pratt in it yeah it's a very cynical (laughs) thing yeah yeah it's all cynical it wouldn't be the same thing much like uh the day the earth stood still when we talked about that versus the the remake of it where like okay but like what is the movie trying to say like what are you trying to tell the audience Give us money. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's There's like, no heart to anything anymore. <laughs> it is wild watching this and like seeing the miniatures of the city. And there's not a tons of shots of the city, but when you do see them, like they're they're, they're trying to like present this city that has roads that are highways that are like up where the planes are flying. So there's like mm-hmm. highways built around the skyscrapers at different there's levels. Tubes that people walk through that like, between buildings and stuff. There's uh, a. Yeah, like, awesome. There's like these like individual elevator things where it's just like constantly going up and like so imagine like instead of like one elevator with a chain pulling it up and down, there was just like a rotating like series of pods so that when the pod goes yeah, up past the elevator like door, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when the pod goes up past the door and someone steps out, literally seconds later the next pod's got someone in it, and then you know like there's just people gonna. Uh, you wait for an empty pod and then you walk yeah. in. Yeah, it's got. It's almost like a like a self-serving like buffet or food like a food thing where there's like plates so like you know like you're at one of those places where your meal comes out in a tray yeah. and it's like a conveyor belt so one of those again like i saw that design i'm like what a cool design for a future <laughs> thing but also no regard to safety but that's kind of also the point of this 
movie is mm. like, how can we make things as efficient as possible with no regard to human safety? Because they're the part that is, is expendable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, oh, it's perfect. Perfect design for this film. So yeah, the, the theory, like, so like some stuff does feel really old school and operatic, like the the mad scientist who is like, you know, tormented he's by the, a he's lost the love. Frankenstein. Yeah, he's you know, Frankenstein. You, you've you've got those elements, and you've got uh, like obviously some. Well, I'm going to praise a lot of what it does for the, the time period and the effects. There's also other things like at one point when there's like a flood happening, like the water immediately gives away the scale of the models because you can't yeah. fake the size of water. Like water is just water, <laughs> so it's like. Oh, like that—that that gives it away, but it, it's obviously got a charm to it, and you respect like all the crazy things they're trying to do in a movie from 1927. Um, like this movie's got things in it that, like, would still feel like a blockbuster if they tried it today. Like, if you if you did this in CG today, it would still feel like a pretty big spectacle type movie. Well, yeah, it does turn into a disaster movie at one point. <laughs> so. Yeah, a lot of wild things going on. Um, and some fun performances. In fact, it's notable the Thin Man that we talked about, the henchman character who kind of, like, you know, spies on people. Like, so many of his scenes in this w- was the added footage of the lower quality. Like, if you took out all that stuff, there wouldn't be much of him left in the movie. Like, most of his really best stuff know. was in the extra stuff. So, that's really quite His fascinating. Job was just to find the sun, right? So, like, it was... Uh, but a lot of... I guess that was the thing that could be cut. Is him searching or him yeah, like, yeah. up with other people. Yeah, you just sort of take it for granted, I guess, in the, the shorter cut, uh, which I've never seen the shorter cut, but uh, because the footage looks so different, you can clearly see what they cut out. And sometimes it is a bit distracting when it's like these little snippets within a larger scene as opposed to like a full scene on its own. Uh, but you can sort of see, oh yeah, you can kind of see how if they cut that part out, it just cuts to this reaction. It just kind of works. It just kind of, you know, you, you, you lose a little bit of the nuance, you lose a little bit of an extra reaction to like this. You know, there's a scene early on when the son goes to see his father, uh, so Frieder goes to see his father, and he's saying, the people down there are suffering, father, and he's like, they're where they belong, and then there's, like, the, the spliced-in footage that was obviously cut of, like, his reaction to that, and, like, it's quite important from the, the context of, oh, we're seeing, like, how horrified he is that his father feels that way. Uh, Honestly, like, when I watched that moment, I thought, wow, I can't believe this was a scene that was cut, or maybe that's something I take... I take for granted watching a modern day movie is that you would want it's the characters are the most important thing. You know, you want mm. to see their reaction. You want to see the horror of it sink in or like the betrayal sink in. But it, in this movie, they're like, get rid of it. <laughs> Just show them running away out of the scene <laughs> to get to the next one. Yeah. And they left out the drama. They they left out the acting. Yeah, well, as again, it's just them trying to cut it, cut it down because it was two and a half. And keep in mind, this was a time period when movies were like an hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, so this probably felt quite long. And imagine as well, this is running at a faster frame rate than it's, it was recorded at. Imagine if it was actually going at the 16 frames per second. You know, it'd be another, what, 40 minutes, maybe? Some of that? I mean, they got intermissions. <laughs> you know, it'd be over three hours long, easy, if it was actually running at the correct rate. And I guess the only reason why you don't, because you could theoretically just slow it down. But I guess it is just, like, too close to looking like still images. You know, maybe it's just, yeah, it, it, it's better just having it a bit quick because otherwise it just looks a bit too framey, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you get into it. It's it's really okay when you watch it. I mean, I understand what you're saying, that, like, everything looks sped up soon, but, like, when you watch clips of Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, yeah. it looks very similar, but... Um, and like the music's all exciting too and fast usually <laughs> to keep up with the pace of the characters. But the, 
I don't know. You just kind of get into it. You kind of get into the flow and forget about it. Yeah, I did like some of the music, actually, especially early on. See, when the, all the workers are going down for their shift, uh, there's this sort of, like, thing it does in the music where it just, it's just this, like, uh, uh, what's the opposite of a crescendo? <laughs> That's a word for it, damn it. Diminuendo, I want to say, maybe? Uh, anyway, regardless, uh, like, it does this thing where it just keeps going lower and lower, and it, you can really feel it. Like, by the time it gets to that last note in the phrase, because it's, like, eight notes in a row where it just keeps descending, that, mm-hmm. by the time it gets to that last note, you can start feeling it in your gut. It's like, ugh, like, that's just too low for comfort. Like, how low mm-hmm. it's going. So it feels like a big story. It feels weighty. Uh, just, just from the music. And the music has to, like, do a lot of lifting, because, yeah, there's no other audio. It, you know, it's just music. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, uh, like, it, it, honestly, like, I think the first time I sat down to watch this, because it, it may have been the first silent film I watched when I first watched it, like, I may have worried, like, is this going to, like, hold my attention, especially for two and a half hours? Is this going to be a tough watch? <laughs> and for the most part, I actually think it's an easier watch than I think you might expect, because it, it is quite, like, atmospheric. You do kind of get into it. Um, some things do feel quite rushed and, like, characters, you know, like, this is always a problem in these movies from this time period, but, you know, like, the way two characters like meet each other and instantly one of them's in love it's just kind of like okay all right this is just part of the t- you know this is of its time this is how stories were written people just fell in love instantly and that's just like you just roll with it and you accept it but for the most part there's maybe a little bit in like the <laughs> in the second half there's maybe a lot of action going on it's very repetitive especially in this longer cut that maybe does get a little bit, yeah. You know, okay, there's maybe some time here that maybe could have been trimmed down still from, you know, maybe you didn't have to put all of these shots of, like, the crowd running in again, you know? But, you know, minor quibbles. Like, it's it's a very easy-to-watch film, I think. Uh, if, if you're someone who cares about film, if you're someone who cares about the history of cinema and science fiction, like, there, there's a lot of stuff to glean from this and sort of get out of it. Uh, and Yeah genuinely is largely still quite entertaining as well like yeah a lot of the performances are are quite good yeah i think they're very fun to watch um i mean like i said before everything has to be kind of exaggerated which can either take you out of a film or just allow yourself to get into this world a bit better because it's silent so um once you already know what you're getting into i think it is a very easy watch yeah so I mean, I don't think there's too much you can actually spoil, really, in this, but we have kept the spoiler-free until now. I will give the spoiler warning in case you care about uh, Metropolis spoilers from 1927. Uh, but everyone should have the choice of watching something with no no spoilers, so I respect Except it. Except for our bonus movies, we don't care about spoilers with those. That's because we usually pick bad movies that are <laughs> obviously bad, and no one should care. Uh, but Bad yeah. according to who? anyone with a brain <laughs> i resemble that remark resent resent that remark <laughs> you did that intentionally tara is funnier and smarter than she likes to let on sometimes <laughs> i do like bad movies though you do but like, I bad also like movies. metropolis i like this movie a lot there's nothing wrong with- i like entertainment there's nothing wrong with liking bad movies just admit they're bad and enjoy them that's all <laughs> easy I, I think there's a threshold that can be broken by a bad film to where it becomes good you seem to disagree but whatever that's not what this movie is so we won't talk about it <laughs> yeah somehow this is turned into a joy and demonic debate again no <laughs> we're not doing it 
That, that was a genuinely good movie. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't a so bad it's good movie. Well, Tara's credibility is once again kicked out of the window. No? No? Uh, <laughs> so, this... My credibility has been defenestrated. <laughs> All right, so we have uh, the sci-fi side of this that we should talk about, uh, which is the, the, the robot to... And then a very... Obviously, it's very kind of hokey and science fiction-y. Uh, like, the fact that he can Who's just... than Gort? It looks better than Gart, yeah, nah, it does. But like, what happens with it is that the so the scientist, right, uh, whose name I'm just going to get because it's cool. Ramstein. It's not Ramstein. Shut up, Rotwang. Rolf. What is it? Rotwang. Rotwang. <laughs> that doesn't sound. Rotwang. German. Rot. Rot. Spell it. R O T, W A N G. Rotwang. Rotvang. Rotvang. Uh, probably, Rotvang. yeah. It's probably a V sound. Yeah, you're right. Rotvang. Yeah, yeah. Wang. <laughs> this doesn't sound German. It sounds like red dick. <laughs> Rotvang. Because Rot is red, I'm sure, if I remember from my high school German days. But it's been a while. I never took German. But been a while. <laughs> German and Austrian family. Yes. Um... <laughs> But yeah, yeah, Rotvang, uh, the mad inventor. Uh, so he hates uh, Friedersen, right? He hates the creator because he was in love with the woman who became Friedersen's wife and Frieder's father. Uh, and then she died, and he's got a big head monument to her <laughs> in her, her memory. And Friedersen comes to him uh, when he's like suspecting that the, the workers, the filthy, no good commoners, are up to something, right? Because they, they keep finding these plans in their pockets, and he doesn't understand them. So he goes to the inventor and asks what the hell what's going on here and the inventor can't can't not show him he's like look i've made a robot you need to see this <laughs> never mind this never yes. mind this other thing you need to see my we're robot just, we're just pooling somewhere in the catacombs against you don't worry about it and we get this check out what i got we get this robot he calls it a machine man uh, even though it's very feminine even before it's like turned into a woman uh and there's a little bit a little bit of hr giger in it like our you know, I was thinking species. I can see a little bit of the species design in this robot. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, she's got, a, she's got all her lady parts. <laughs> we know why he made her. <laughs> well, he he literally wants to make it. Like he's modeling her after this dead woman hell. that he was in love with. Yeah, Hell is her name. Yeah. Uh, short for Helen or Helenberger or something probably. Hel yeah. Helga. <laughs> Maybe Helga. Yeah, that's also very German. Yes. Uh, but like he he shows her he's like hey I'm going to turn her on turn her on that sounds bad you know what I mean because she's she's dormant she's not she's not awake yet right nice right and like when she's awake you'll not be able to tell the difference between her and a human being and I was like I don't know she looks pretty robotic right <laughs> Tur turns out later on when he scans uh our female lead right Maria uh it, it basically terminators the robot and then it just completely gives it this coating of. Uh, like a human, right? And it looks like her. So the whole idea is that they replace Maria with evil robot Maria, who is there to like, you know, sow dissent and like make the the worker because because Maria is this character is introduced and immediately our rich boy Frieder, who's up in his like country club, like chasing around women because that's what he does because he's a one percenter. Yeah, it's called like a boys club. Yeah. 
uh, and they're running around just playing games, and then Maria somehow uh, is more than that. Sorry, more than that. But go on. Sure, sure. I, I, want, I want to talk about this club. Oops. Oh, we can talk about it, yeah. But Maria <laughs> somehow brings up like a group of the, the poor children. Somehow she's been able to do it. I assume she's a teacher. That's like her, her role, perhaps. But she brings up these kids and says, this is your brothers. This is how they live. And she's not really meant to be. Her security comes to kick her out quite quickly. But immediately Frieda's like, you know, you, you know, uh, irrelevant to this, but we, we brought up Wayne's World before we started recording. And it was it's like Wayne's World where he sees, you know, Tia... Uh, uh, Curry's character. Swing. Yeah. Yeah. He's basically a swing. He's swinging. And he must know where she's where she's from and he he, he goes down to like and all the rest of it. But when he eventually finds her later, we'll talk about all his antics to get there, but when he eventually finds her, she turns out to be this like sort of uh, almost like I don't know, prophet pro- prophesizer? Philosopher. I mean, she's sort of um, a preacher presented as like an angel or a saint or something. Yeah, right? but, but if she's uh, if she's a rebel leader. She's she's giving speeches to the workers and saying how, um, like the head and the hands, the hands representing the working class, the head being the one percenters up in the towers. There needs to be a heart to mediate them, and that and it kind of talks about the heart as like a chosen one, and that's ultimately yeah, that's going to be Frieder who's going to like be this mediator between the heart and the, the or the head and the hands and he's going to bring the working class and the rich together and harmony potentially after the story you know we never get to see how that's going to work we just we, we end the movie with a handshake that says he did it like, don't, don't think about it after that because who knows but we have automatons true true we've got <laughs> robots now uh although the inventor's dead at the end of the movie so i don't know if they can just can, yeah, can they make more the robot. i don't know but anyway uh <laughs> So she's like this person inspiring them and giving them hope and all these things. And Friedersen, big, bad, evil, rich man who built the city, doesn't want that. He wants yeah. them to be scared. He wants them to be, uh, you know, obedient. He wants all these things. So he wants the inventor to make her look like Maria so that she, her credibility will be ruined. And it'll inspire them to do something that will mean that he can use force against them. He can like just justifiably start stamping them down on them. And it's like, okay, this is very relevant. This is all very political and all, all that stuff. Um, but the inventor, Rotvang, he... Rotvang. He secretly still hates Friedersen and wants evil robot Maria to take down the entire city and like ruin everything so that he can get his revenge. As well, She'll still do what, what Friedersen wants, but he wants her to like ruin the city. Because that's that's Friedersen's baby. That's his real son. And he also wants yeah. his son to be killed too. So that's kind of where we get to. Uh, and the reason why I'm saying all this is that we we get like a, a very Terminator esque sort of thing where she, even though she doesn't act like a Terminator, she she acts like just like an evil doppelganger. Uh, and the the actress is putting put putting effort into this. Like she's doing the evil eyebrow. Like immediately as soon as like she's got the skin on her and she looks like a human, like immediately she starts doing the evil eyebrow. And she's great. Yeah, just she she goes to like a like one of these like boys clubs things, uh, and we get this montage where she basically like makes them all go nuts and start fighting over her, and let the murders happen. It's all it's mostly implied, but the the general idea is that she she's causing like actual chaos, like she's she's making people start killing each other and stuff. All wild, feminine wild. Yeah, yes. there's literally there's a shot of like there's like a shot of like all the men in the club at one point looking at her, and they're all kind of. Like, mm. 
Like oh, yeah, all, they are so turned on. They are thirsty. <laughs> that is the only, like, they are demonically thirsty. They they turn into dogs is really what it's, like, yeah. showing. Yeah. Uh, and she's she's lapping up and she's doing this weird like belly dance thing. I, like it's, it's the least sexy thing I've ever seen. But these men are all into. It. <laughs> they're all they're all they're all like the nineteen twenties. Very yeah. different time. Yeah, I like, I don't understand anything they thinks like <laughs> attractive in this. I, I really don't. Um, but that's okay. So all, all 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 of this is to say that we we get you know like her being like burned by fire at the end as if she's a witch which kind of it's supposed to be like terminator where it melts off her skin and then she's the robot again but in this movie it's just like a fade <laughs> it's a fade to the the, the robot costume yeah you understand what's going on still. of course like, of course because she's not phased by the fire at all it's oh like, she's like, laughing she, she's yeah. she's she, she's a witch like she's perf- she's doing the witch performative act yeah for everybody and cackling away reveals, yeah when it reveals that she's a robot Everyone else is totally afraid all of a sudden. They're like, oh, shit. Yeah, because... Do you do this now? Because even though Frieda knows that there's two, there's an evil one and it's not really her, he doesn't know it's, that that's her specifically right now. So he's, like, trying to save her. He's like, ah, let me through, let me through. Um, he didn't look to see if she was wearing eyeliner. <laughs> one of the tell signs, yes. Yes, of a robot. Yeah, but... Yeah, actually, that's actually is so. So this part where she's like making everyone go crazy and like co- like basically spreading like panic and hysteria. This is one of the things that's very Twin Peaks season three. And not only is this idea very Twin, Pe- the reason why I was thinking about it at all is because earlier I think it's when um, Friedersen is either talking to Rotvang or Rotvang's on his own talking about it. But he starts talking about how he's going to use her to become Babylon, right? And it gives you a little bit of background on Babylon, the mother of all abominations. That actual bit of mythology is actually referenced in Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks Season 3 has this idea that, like, people are just starting to go kind of nuts. And it's, it's more ethereal than that. And it's more, it's not like, a, a, like, it's not like a literal presence that's walking around. Because, it's, you know, it's David Lynch. It's a lot more, like, ambiguous and stuff. But that's there. So... When it referenced Babylon and that she's going to be Babylon, this, like, sort of, like, evil woman who's going to, like, spread, like, panic and whatever, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then it actually has happened, and I was like, oh, this is actually, like, a 1920s version of that. It's just very much doing that idea that she is spreading this chaos throughout the, the community and making people act out and obviously she does it with all the rich people where they all start fighting each other, and then she does it with the poor people by making them, like, sabotage the the machines that run the city which you know causes all the chaos towards the end so all fascinating stuff i liked all that i mean i'm sure lynch is not it's familiar with the bible as well and he takes a lot of themes from that oh of course yeah i mean babylon is a pretty famous the tower well the tower of babel is very famous and which is up in this and that represents also like the um the tower of which you know the people at the top live the ones that get to be closest to god even the one that has, uh, even when we see um, the this this boys club for the first time, it's it looks like they're on Mount Olympus, like they're they're literally doing like Olympic sports up there too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can see all the Olympians on the side, and uh, then we go to the Garden of Eden in the center, and there's a man there saying, "Who wants to be the woman for this man's pleasure?" And uh, women are like coming forward, and the guy like fixes her makeup even to make her look even more uh, like. Uh, the, the standard of beauty for that time um and then that's when uh we first meet maria when she walks in with the kids so it's uh yeah i mean the 
there, there's a lot of biblical stuff going on in this. And uh, mind you, I, I haven't read the entire Bible. I, I only studied the first, uh, the, the first part of the Bible in school. So, and I didn't grow up religious, but you know, it's in the zeitgeist for a lot of things, but I do think that this Messiah one character, uh, Frida is also, he, he reminds me more of like, is it Siddhartha than he does Jesus in a way? I mean, there's, although there's so much Christianity in this film, it's more of like, uh, are you actually asking me? Cause I've never heard this word, this name before in my life, but <laughs> well, like Buddha. So like Siddhartha was a, was a prince who had everything and was completely naive to like other stuff that was out there. And all of a sudden that, that is shattered, you know, <laughs> when he realizes that all he has versus anyone else is just stuff. And so like, he literally sheds all of his stuff. Like that's, he, he shouldn't be better than anyone else. You know, that's like his Prince Siddhartha's journey. Mm. And uh, so that's what it reminds me more of than, than Christ who kind of already grew up with nothing as far as I know anyway he was born in a barn gross so I assume he grew up with nothing well um, to be fair I don't think anyone I mean I, I certainly wasn't comparing him to Jesus and I don't, I don't think I've read that anyone does well he had this like messianic sort of character you know mm. when you watch the film like we need the we need our one we need our guy who who can um who will save us we're waiting on somebody to come. Like you said he was coming, but he hasn't shown up yet. We're like, just keep waiting. He'll show. <laughs> we know that we need a mediator. He's going to be here one day. You know, it is very Jesus-like. Yeah, yeah, I guess. It's, um, whatever one you said sounds more applicable, though. Yeah. <laughs> Buddha. I, I, like, I like how you, uh, sp- like, okay, I've not read the whole bit. Like, I am assuming that no... Unless you state you have read the Bible, I'm assuming that no one I meet has read any of the Bible. <laughs> okay? You know, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm in America, so, like, a lot of people just grew up going to church reading the Bible every day. So. It's just to be I've not read the whole... It's like, I wouldn't have assumed you had. <laughs> I really would have assumed that. Well, I didn't grow up religious for anyone who, has, who doesn't know, so I don't want to... I don't want to start saying, like, oh, there's all this Bible stuff, and someone be like, oh, well, you missed a very clear one. Like, I didn't... I don't know. I don't know all of it. But like, there's some, you know, there's a lot of it in this movie that I recognize. Oh sure, I mean, I I can recognize it to a point, but like past a certain level, I'm just like, there's Bible stuff, you know, I can see some of the allegory, but like beyond that, like that's, I can't go any further because I, I just don't know it well enough to actually break it down. Uh, well, which... yeah, and we, I mean, also like the false god is New Testament, and and I think anyway, and that seems to be in this movie uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, with when she shows up and she's this alluring piece of machinery that's like um, that is, is sexy and is putting everybody into a trance and they'll do anything for this machinery. But uh, she's uh, a false god and she's being held up by like the seven deadly sins at one point. Um, yeah, she's she's a robot who's like a false god to them, but it's notable that she's created by the. You know the, the the rich people. She's 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 created by the the inventor and by the one who's trying to control. Because what what I really got a lot of all of this is this idea that Friedersen is trying to manipulate the lower class to control them. Felt super political, obviously, but it it feels so political in a really sort of nefarious way that feels mm-hmm. it feels very. This is part of the film that I feel, I, I think feels ahead of its time. 
Like, the way in which it's looking at, the way people are controlled, and the way that he's trying to sort of disillusion them and make them think they've got this illusion of choice, that they've got this illusion of like, rebelling, but he's actually secretly kind of allowing it to a point so that he can just sort of fight back. That That is quite fascinating, and ultimately it's not until he sees his own son in peril at the end that maybe he kind of is willing to see the humanity in all these people that he's been shitting on up until this point. Um, which, you know, so, and if, anyth- if anything, like, if, if I'm going to, like, say if there's a weak element to the story, it might actually be that. Is that I, I don't know if I necessarily get enough from him himself that the ending where he is willing to work with everyone else necessarily fits completely. You know, I don't know if they quite earn that, per se, but it doesn't matter too much because, like, the entire world that's been created here is so engrossing and the the atmosphere of it is all just it's just too like thick and too potent to not like be into it yeah the political stuff i definitely caught on to that um i was like oh this is really intriguing was the uh the fact that they want to take um the idol of like this rebellious group and use her as a weapon Mm. so i mean you could see that as like oh you think that we're evil but like we're going to you know um uh, defame this image that you have of this other person who's also evil now you know we're going to make that or, or even just buy them out you know in a way um it's not happening in this movie but you can kind of make that parallel to where like oh um like any cause that's popular um in order for industries to be like oh yeah we're we're part of this cause too and now all of a sudden that cause doesn't have the same weight to it because it's being funded by people who are not evil but like by corporations all yeah. of a sudden and it becomes a commodity and it doesn't mean the same thing it used to when it was about people you can also compare it a little bit to like a political race and try to like undercut your opponent by making them more of a villain to everyone by sort of saying hey look at what they really do no, yeah and the a real- political ad with all these like uh, yeah really terrible pictures of somebody or from like way back when they were in like college or something and Sure, yeah, they shouldn't have done blackface. <laughs> you know? Now you can't get behind this guy, even though we are still evil, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, you've got all these elements that are there with, with that side of the plot that I find super fascinating. And I do think the performance of uh, Rotvang's quite fun. He's like quite demented looking the second he appears on camera. Uh, and he's really lapping it up. And I, I think it's... It's fascinating to me. Like One of the weird things I have watching any movie from Germany uh, from this time period, it's, it's weird to stop and think that it's before World War Two, And it's like, even that before like the Nazis came into power. This is like before. This predates that by like six years. So it's wild to think about like the time period this was being produced in and where it was being produced and like the political climate that was kind of on the rise and where they it was eventually going to go like the patterns yeah or yeah fritz or whoever you know wrote the screenplay i think it's based on like a short story or something but like it's uh it, yeah they're probably seeing the rise of these fascist groups i mean th- think about part of what hitler did was that he dehumanized other groups as the villains you know jewish people specifically is the big one but like he dehumanized other people and said they're the enemy they've done this they you know that was part of his like platform that he built his following on and it's kind of fascinating to see people kind of almost warning others against parts of that in mm-hmm. this. I mean, it's very different. It's not the exact, it's not a one-to-one, but you can definitely see how some of these feelings were there at the time and, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, didn't... You know, yeah, th- th- I mean, I, you can... 
even make the comparison of like of course like it's germany that would make the the first movie or first movie about a robot because <laughs> they want to create a master race and that's just another interpretation of like pygmalion or frankenstein or some where you just want to create your own perfect being yeah yeah and uh, the olympics the olympics obviously were a big deal to hitler and that's depicted in this and as like the one percent you know everybody's just doing all these uh perfect sports and their perfect bodies and <laughs> which, which is part of why i think the story well, well there's obviously these things that are a bit too quick or maybe some turning points that are maybe not quite as earned in a traditional storytelling way the reason why the story i think still holds up is being quite relevant is that you can recognize things in it that are relevant to this time period that feel quite like a big deal but then there's the stuff with the, the rich versus the poor that still feels just as relevant today um and then even the idea that there is like a an alt-right kind of movement in the, the, the modern day still it makes it almost feel like the stuff that was relevant that feels specific to the time is almost relevant again sadly in a, in a different way now Uh-oh. like there's just there's there's a lot of things in there yeah uh, that uh, yeah, the, the, this core idea that there's there's these people that are slaving away at the bottom to you know because the 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 because the, the main character Frieder part of his path to try and find her again after he, he befriends someone else that gets fired from his dad we'll talk about him in a bit but he he goes and he takes the place of someone who's working because he sees an accident the first time he's down in the like the the pits looking at the workers and the the machines. And there's this, he has a, a, a hallucination where he, he sort of sees it turn into like a monster. It's like a big sort of demonic looking sphinx. Moloch, sort of. I think you call it. Yeah, that's what you call it, Moloch, yeah. Moloch. Uh, yeah. Uh, but Moloch. like he sees that the first time and then he goes back down and he's horrified by what people are getting put through. And he actually takes the place, he swaps places with a worker down there who's struggling to, and all it feels like he's doing is moving the hands of like a clock effectively. Every yeah. time the lights light up, he just keeps moving the hands. But there's a meter, so if they if they go too slow, uh, something will explode. And yeah. you can see that it's like a thermometer rising up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he takes his place because he's too tired. And what I loved is at the end of this workday, like, Frieder looks even more tired than everyone else who's, like, just ending their shift. Like, because he's never done a hard work's, you know, a hard day's work, like everyone else has down here, uh, mm-hmm. he looks like he's about to have a heart attack when everyone else is just out of breath and, like, you know, like walking slow he looks like he's like collapsing compared to everyone else but he takes this role and this guy is given his clothes and his identity and he goes out into the world and he's meant to go straight to this friend that he's made uh what was it joe josepha josepha yeah uh i'm probably mispronouncing that but <laughs> that's his name. took german <laughs> if he didn't is learn it, is it every joe name, or yo josepha maybe josepha you're right you're right uh but he, uh, inst- instead of going to where he's supposed to, this apartment where this other guy's living, uh, this worker, like, he sees, like, a flyer for, like, a party, and he's never been to, like, a party like this before, and he's, he's immediately... Never had, yeah, he's never he, had fun. He, he sees, like, a woman, like, in another car, because they're up in, like, one of these big, like, you know, highways that are up in the skyscrapers, and he looks over and sees this woman putting on makeup, and he's like, like, she doesn't look, like, homeless. What What is this? <laughs> and he's he's... He's just drawn in by the allure and stuff, and most of this is actually in the extra footage that has clearly been put back in, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is like the the thin man like coming after him and then going after Yosefa at his place, and that's where we get to see the fancy elevators and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, all, all that medicine stuff with him, I think, is a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, you know, a, a kind of a modern day retelling of this is that episode of uh, Black Mirror with uh, where they're working on the bikes. 
and they have to earn credits every day. Oh yeah, 15 million credits or whatever it's called, yeah. Something like that, yeah. And um, our main character, <clears throat> the Get Out guy. Uh, Kal- Kaluuya. Dang, dang yeah, Kaluuya. Daniel Kaluuya. There you go. Um, you know, he ends up becoming like a voice of the working class and only just to be tempted and ultimately bought out um, by the corporation uh, that's running everything. So he still is a voice for them, but he's being paid by the corporation. <laughs> just the, the the idea that, you know, when you break out of your class, that you no longer see yourself as uh, somebody who was who's still part of that older class that needs help. Mm. You know, it's just the temptation of being um, being in the upper class is just too much that you'll, they'll never they'll never be able to to work together. Like they're always going to have to be separate. Yeah, well, not necessarily, but you're hoping like that. That's the it always shows you that danger of that happening. Yeah, uh, and people need to be like conscious and aware it's, of that yeah, fact. The, the allure of, of being of having everything that you want because you're higher up than everyone else. You're on the top of the mountain, you know, it's or the yeah. top of the tower. Because I, I, I don't think because this obviously ends with a happy ending. Whereas that Black Mirror episode ends with like a total downer of like a oh no, like everyone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but like I, I think. I, th- I think the point of that is a warning that we have to be aware of this so we don't just like like let this happen all over and over again like we're, you know, the next people who do break out of the lower class into their class should remember where they come from so that they, they can improve things and make things better um yeah yeah they tend to just be like well i deserve it more but because <laughs> i worked harder than everyone else and i i the system worked because it worked for me you know I mean, yeah, that's, 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 that's usually what I hear. But yeah, you're right. It, it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, but not everyone is that way. I think, like, I think, it's, I think it's a little bit too nihilistic to say that absolutely everyone who breaks out of a lower class into an upper class just becomes a dick instantly. <laughs> Maybe that's just my experience. I, th- I don't think that's completely true. I, th- I think there are some people who are, are decent people who are still decent, even if they become like, you know, rich or whatever. So I guess we have to talk about all the chaos that sort of happens in the the back half. Uh, Robot Maria, uh, she encourages like a rebellion and they all destroy some of the machines. What they don't realize though is that all of their children, all the poor people's children who have left in what they call Worker City, where all the workers live, uh, that all starts to flood because of, the, 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 of them destroying it. So they basically are dooming their own children to death. And it's only because real Maria at this point has escaped the evil scientist, which is the scene that's the one scene that's not back is like just a text about a text telling you that she managed to escape, which is a pretty important detail that she was kidnapped and has now escaped. But her and then eventually uh, Frieda and Josefat sort of show up as well and they all sort of help save the children and like, you know, get them up all these stairs and ladders, take them out into the upper upper world and are like, why are the lights off? And it's because, you know, all the machines have turned off. Like the the, the machine of the city is is the, you know, because literally the machine that destroys called the, the machine heart, I think uh yeah yeah. that's the last one right every everything else seems to be running something else i don't know but like the heart is the one where grot is in protecting the foreman he's the one who's protecting the heart yeah uh so they rescue all the children and then it's around here where all of the poor people find out from grot who's went and realize that their city's flooded he's like hey where, where are all your children like the city's underwater and they all start like you know crying and bawling and then they blame maria and say she's the witch that made us do this which is why they chase her down 
to burn her at the stake. And they're actually chasing the real Maria at one point here for a while, even though she saved her children. Um, and notably, uh, Frieda says, we'll take all the kids to the boys' club. Like, that's where they put them all, the, all the kids for safety, uh, whilst they're off doing other things. And it's just by luck that Robot Maria is still with, like, a bunch of rich people partying, and when real Maria runs through that crowd, they kind of switch to the Robot Maria, and she's the one that gets burned and reveals that she's a robot. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Rose Vang, the inventor, is, like, now delirious and starting to think that Maria is hell, his dead lover, and starts chasing her around. And this is where we get a very sort of typical, like, old-school story ending where mm-hmm. he, 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 like, chases her up a roof and then Frieder chases them up and they end up fighting on top of the roof and he eventually falls to his death. And there's a lot of shots of Frieder's father looking up and, like, holding his head and, like, oh, like, like my boy. <laughs> uh, he's finally seen the value of human life or something, maybe, a little bit. Possibly. Yeah, I think uh could just be like the uh the narcissism in him, you know, where he just that's his son, that's his mm-hmm. that his heir, the one that's supposed to take over things that um that is the reason why he loves his son so much. But it's also just like the moment where he has some sort of humanity, so like maybe that is just a reminder that everyone in any class still has the same value when it comes to family and seeing human life but because because he's pretty monstrous throughout you know like he fires a guy early on because someone else tells him stuff that rather than yeah and he was going to kill himself rather than go to a lower class uh yeah not a dad yeah the guy got fired uh yeah. yosefat was going to kill himself and it's actually Frieder who steps in and says no and Frieder even says to his dad like father do you know what it means to be like exiled by you it means he has to go down below and become one of the workers and stuff yeah. and uh, he doesn't to care shoot himself <laughs> and, Fre- Fre- <laughs> and then become part of the system and Friederson then uh, asks the thin man to like keep an eye on his son because he doesn't trust his son anymore so you know he, he comes across very villainous he then wants to manipulate the, the workers by using the robot lady and so on and so on so he, you know he's making all these evil choices just to control the people in his life whether it be the, the working class whether it be his son he wants to control everyone the entire time and I guess it's when it's not in his control and it's truly up to fate like his son's own like fight up in the rooftop where he finally kind of like lets that fall a little bit um and i guess i guess he'll go through with things because his son wants it to happen his son you know will be the mediator that says no have some compassion yet old fart mm-hmm. like give the people some rights let them <laughs> let them have some lives please yeah uh, you know so and, and there's even a little bit uh I wouldn't say it mirrors the story necessarily, but even the fact that he's fallen in love with a woman from the working class, you know, it's a little Romeo and Juliet kind of, you know, to to different circles of life kind of thing. So there's a lot of classic tropes in it. There absolutely is. Um, But it also feels like super ahead of its time in other ways, even if it's quite, you know, you know, I wouldn't say cheesy, but like you know, when when the actual like things happening, where he's got Maria on like the bed, the scientist, and we've got like the the waves of electricity like going through her, and then like I the, love that shot. She's yeah. wearing like the swim cap with all the yeah, uh, I don't know wires and stuff attached to her head. Yeah, and then then like the the robot sort of just you know cross fades into like being like her <laughs> on the chair. I love that. That was like the most science fiction this this movie got. <laughs> Yeah, we had that. We had the city. 
And the, the themes are very science fiction, of course. I mean, they can be in lots of different genres, but we, we, we get a lot of these social topics popping up in science fiction, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially when we have... You know, because in many ways, this was like a... <laughs> you know, it's, it's a weird thing to compare it to, because I, I don't love this movie, even though a lot of people do. But, you know, like, you can sort of see how something like Snowpiercer exists because of this movie, you know? There's two separate classes... Mm-hmm. lower class rising up you know but it's very like confined in this case it's a whole city but it's very confined in the sense that oh no we can just bubble it down into one group of like this system as opposed to this like intricate thing that the world is where there's all these different countries and different you know like there's a lot of it's a lot more complicated in the real world but uh sure yeah i understand but the movie makes it simple it's like no one city one metropolis and Fritz Lang, you know, he, like, I have to imagine at the time this was made, like, part of the appeal of doing it was that these cities that were just starting to look like something kind of like this, not exactly this, obviously, but lots of skyscrapers in New York, yeah. things like that, that would have been a relatively new, like, site at the time. Mm-hmm. That would have been something that would have been quite, you know, uh, visually, you know, spectacular just to see in real life, so... That's the probably 20s, so everyone's got everyone's getting their own vehicles now. Yeah, yeah. Uh so that's probably the other part of this is that he like this is the envisioning of oh what are these skyscraper filled cities going to be like when they're done, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And that's what this is. Uh so there's a lot of uh there's a, there's a lot of imagining in the future and it there's a lot of uh hopeful ideas and but obviously the the, the actual warning of uh keeping humanity uh, and the fact that the, the main sort of villain villainous gimmick, the villainous, you know, uh, MacGuffin, if you will, is the lack of humanity. It's literally just a robot with a human face. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, a lot of classic science fiction themes. Uh, maybe not that classic at the time, <laughs> but certainly are now. Definitely, yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I don't know... I, I was definitely expecting a shorter movie. I did not know that the... Until you told me that the movie was, like, over two hours. I, I always imagine this movie only being, like, 70 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But maybe that's because I heard somewhere that it was a shorter film. But, um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a long movie. You're right. There's a lot of classic tropes, but it kind of makes it feel more of, like, a, like an epic novel that's been adapted mm. that way. You know, like, almost like you're watching something from Homer. Um uh, the the Greek, not the uh, the Simpson, but <laughs> I assumed as much. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, there's something about it that makes it feel very classical in uh, that kind of writing style. I, well, I think but that in makes, the visual form that makes a lot of sense. Though when you think about it, though, right? Like, because obviously Frankenstein's credit has been the first ever science fiction story written, right? Um, and this is you know a few decades later. It were the early days of film, especially feature-length cinema, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that a lot of early cinema is, like, try to find what cinema is. It's, you know, it's try to find... And I think, as the decades go on, I think the, the way stories are told and differences between film and, like, books and other forms of, of storytelling become more distinct. And I think, you know, these days, I think there's a way you tell a story in a movie. And we understand what that is. I mean, there's a way you tell a story when you're writing. Because so, I think that difference you're talking about where it feels like, you know, something that's been adapted from a book, even though it isn't. 
it kind of like it's because that's just what stories were at the time like stories like came you know that's, that was just, that was the form of storytelling at the time that was that was established that everyone understood and had been around for a long time uh whereas today yeah. film making's been established and we we can recognize how films tell stories but there's still something about it that feels more like a like an epic like a rather than like a classical story you know hmm. there's a story about um uh, I don't know what's an example I can use. Who reads books anymore? Well, even Frankenstein versus like um, uh, like Ovid's Metamorphoses, or or I'll just stick to Homer, like the Iliad, you know, where that feels like it's or um, like Milton, you know, <laughs> like um, Paradise Lost, so, like a like a classic epic um, poem almost where. It's like written for God. Like this is God writing through me to make the great epic. Um, that's what it feels like when you watch this versus like, uh, like even when I watch Faust, which is a very traditional story that comes from like the Renaissance, but it's still, this one feels more like a, like ambitious, you know? Oh like yeah, th absolutely. There's something, there's something about it that's elevated versus uh, the other storytelling. Like watching, you know, 2001 versus Logan's Run or something, you know. Oh, <laughs> there, there, what a comparison. There's a, there's a grandiose, like, um, it, it almost feels like you're watching something epic because of you know, I mean, the I difference, think, you know. I think there's two things to get into this. I think one of them is that you're watching something by a, an actual artist, right? You know, to, to go with the, the Kubrick yeah, versus Logan's Run, right? Yeah. So you've got that, I think, there, because Fritz Lang is a talented filmmaker, and he's clearly, this is very ambitious for the time period. This is like... He is reaching beyond what other movies would be trying for such a long time in this film. Like, to the point where most films we review tend to be 70s and onwards because, you know, 50s and 60s have years cheesy sci-fi, and we'll do them from time to time. But this movie's kind of, like, hinting for something that wouldn't really be in movies again in science fiction for a long time. And then the other thing, of course, is the... Is the just the, the fact that it is the dawn of cinema, effectively, right? We're in these early days of film where doing something on this scale is big. It's so much bigger than a lot of other movies. Not, not all. Um, there's other examples that people probably tell us and probably war movies, I imagine, the other big ones at the time, just because that's what was popular and people put, you know, put a lot of effort into. But it feels so big in scope and scale and size that mm -hmm. I think that combined with the fact that you've got an actual, you know, auteur, if you want to use a pretentious word, making it, if it's... <laughs> yeah, it it feels yeah it feels bigger it feels like bigger than its time it feels bigger and ahead of its time mm -hmm. uh in the same way that a kubrick film does and it's the sort of thing where much like a kubrick not everyone's going to like get it and see the appeal some people you know a lot of your, your casual film goers would never watch a silent black and white two hour and a half hour movie anyway but like but you can compare it to like something like kubrick where a lot a lot of casual movie goers don't like 2001 they they think it's you know long and pretentious and they just don't you know get it and they don't really want to think about it uh they want a plot <laughs> that's mm -hmm. you know more straightforward and that was just fine i'm not i'm not even bad mouthing people who are into it. there's definitely some people that i would bad mouth that, that will speak ill of it but not everyone um <laughs> I, I think metropolis is very much one of our early examples of that in cinema it's it definitely feels like this is something special when you yeah. watch it um, and the fact that, you know, it was misunderstood at the time or people sort of wrote it off or maybe people were just so determined to, like, not agree with communism in any way that anything that was against capitalism was was shunned. <laughs> uh, 
any sort of critique or criticism because they're yeah. not saying let's do away with it i mean they're still like we just have to work together for the, yeah. the, the head the heart and the hand have to make the body you know so let's <laughs> That's, tr- that, that's very true it's, it's not even saying yeah we have to abolish the entire system it's just saying let's not be inhumane about it that's uh <laughs> let's yeah. let's make it work for everyone and the part of the everyone in the system has to work with it you have to even have- at one point the um the father who i keep thinking of ronnie cox but like it's not him obviously but like if, if in my head he's ronnie cox because that's the kind of actor that would play this role now <laughs> or in the movies well not now is ronnie cox even alive still i don't know i think he is but he's he'll be old not acting <laughs> yes this is ronnie cox from robocop just for anyone who's not keeping up with who this is yeah, who she's talking yeah. about. or or from uh um um total recall uh <laughs> yes ronnie cox of this movie he uh you know at, at one point and when everything's breaking down he tells Grot to let them in, like, let them destroy the heart. He still wants everything to fall at this point, because I guess in his mind, like, if it if it all breaks down, then, and everybody suffers, he's still going to be on top, and they'll still come to him for leadership. So he still wants to, like, overall, it doesn't matter what happens at this point anymore, or how many lives are lost. All that matters to him is being on top of whatever this hierarchy is. You know, hmm. which I yeah. thought was an interesting turn of the character. <laughs> I was like, why, why is he letting them in there? Oh, because all that matters is power. Yeah. All boils down to power and staying at the top of the food chain. Um, yeah. Just build it again when they're all suffering. And don't get me wrong, like watching this from a modern lens, like, yeah, it's a little bit quaint in the way that like, you know, Frida, the main character, is like, oh, I've been a rich boy all my life, and now I see how hard it is for the poor people, so I want to champion for them. It's got a little bit of that, I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down and be the saviour of the, these people's kind of, you know, plot. Which, you know, it, it's easy, I think, to, to not necessarily get enough from his character to really want to root for him. You have to accept that we're in a, a simpler storytelling sort of time period. Well, in yeah, that he, sense. he represents the heart of it. So, like, he just... He, it's not just the mediator, but someone who understands both sides and i think if everybody were in that position you know that they understood both sides rather than um thinking like oh they're above so they're evil and they're below so that's where they belong you know they're not deserving or something like that it should be you know seeing both sides of everything i don't know but i'm starting to mess up my words a bit because uh my i need a mediator between my brain and my mouth <laughs> well, no, I, all, all i'm saying is, is that i think as a character like I, I think everything it's doing thematically makes complete sense it's just that as a yeah. character that we want to like root for and care about i don't know if i ever like do because he's just a little bit i won't say one note per se but he, he just you know he sort of turns so quick that i, I feel like a modern version of this story not that i think it should be remade i'm not saying that but like a modern sort of no. character of this type I would say you, you, you'd want to feel kind of that transition more where he sees things that sort of change his mind and open his eyes and the, that, that should feel like a proper like arc and a story where we can root for him now because he feels like he's really grown. Whereas in this, it's like he sees one thing and he's like, ah, the, father, this is an outrage. What's happening? Yeah, it's, he, he almost living in a bubble, a privileged bubble that got busted, yeah, you know? Yeah. So all of a sudden everything is different for him. And so, that's it. Yeah, I, but it's, it, all I'm really describing here is just a difference in how, like, 
for the better and good writing characters have become like written and more like as times went on and we've evolved how we write movie characters and stuff um and with like, dialogue uh, of course with dialogue but you know i'm not, obviously not all examples of more movies are good they're not there's tons of shit writing right like i'll complain about it constantly on this show when it comes up but when it's good characters are, are you know they've got more going on there's there's, there's more there's more nuance to them there's more going on behind the eyes there's more actual arcs happening and things like that whereas you know the characters in this story not all of them but at times they're 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 a bit more simplistic to serve the plot and it works in the movie but i'm you know i'm just sort of saying i can see where the improvements in time can come from and where it's ahead of its time but where it's all still very much of its time in other ways as well and that's okay it's just what it is but uh I think you let a lot of that go and this whereas if a movie came out now and had some of these things you would not let it go you'd be like no why why does this feel like it was a movie that was made you know 90 years ago mm-hmm. uh that wouldn't make any sense i definitely sense. don't want it to be remade no no but if it was i'd say Denis villeneuve <laughs> if he's already he's done blade style, runner you know he would do it but he's already done blade runner though do you really want him to do a futuristic I city do. movie yeah, but he did Blade Runner and he did Dune and he made both of them better. <laughs> no, but, uh, but well, sure he did Dune, but like uh, I'm talking about, he's already done like a, a futuristic city movie. He doesn't need to do another one. <laughs> but it's similar. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there'd be. I, I just. I think he would make it different. He wouldn't make the Blade Runner again. It would look different. Uh, also, Denis Villeneuve's uh, a little overrated. All right. How dare you? That's a. Like I, I really like Arrival, uh, but uh, definitely just... a lot. I think Dark City definitely took a lot from from this as well, aesthetic wise. I can kind of see that, uh, but despite the fact that it was like seventy years later, much worse. <laughs> it's just the editing. That's all. Speaking editing of... and Kiefer Sutherland, uh, and also a really stupid superhero movie like fight scene at the end. Come on, though. That was bad. Uh, I can't remember. Um, it, it, it turned into a really bad comic book movie in the last, like, 20 minutes. <laughs> it began the, the comic book movie trope. <laughs> there might have been a beam of light. There might have been, but there was definitely people flying around and, like, dodgy visual effects. It was like, <laughs> that, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so yes. So you, no modern day director for you then, just Lynch. <laughs> I I wouldn't want anyone to make this. I, I I think it's far more interesting to compare some of the themes and the ideas that Lynch took for Twin Peaks and see how he did them in the context of Twin Peaks than it would be for Lynch to just do a Metropolis movie. I, mean, I don't get me wrong; it'd be fascinating. I'd watch it, see what it's like. Look at like, of course I would, but no, I don't want it remade. Like, Have you watched the Fablemans yet? Uh, not yet, no. Why? Lynch is in it. Like actual David Lynch or someone plays young David Lynch? No, actual David Lynch. Okay. Cool. <laughs> is he is he playing himself? No. Oh no, he's just playing. But a it's, a, it's a surprise. I don't want to hold that. Okay, okay, okay. 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 Ah, okay. 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 He played the character in Twin Peaks. He was uh an FBI agent. He was like the most amazing part of the Fablemans. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. 
He's a very entertaining man. He's, he's, a, <laughs> he's, a, he's a third to force, as David Lynch. Um, yeah. But yeah, Metropolis is very good. There's the, there's the, well, it's turned into me saying what things are overrated <laughs> at present day. Metropolis is very good and is a founding... I, I was the nihilist here. Is that... <laughs> You're a nihilist when it comes to like society. I'm a nihilist when it comes I, to movie I have quality. A in environmental science, okay? That was it was four years of nihilism. All right. <laughs> we're not talking about environmental science. Though. We're not talking about uh, the climate. We're not talking about uh, anything related to that. A, okay, I just uh, I I like people. But they're the worst part of society. They're the worst part. People suck. Yeah, but they can change. <laughs> Oh, you've Did changed you your tune. You've changed your tune. No, I haven't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it was. I think what's wild about this is that as much as things change, and a lot of things has changed in film since this movie, there's so many ideas and things in it that have stayed the same. And, you know, there's something comforting about some of it, and there's something, you know, sad about some other parts of it that have not changed, yeah. you know? So, uh, it's a really fascinating window into the past and just, uh, yeah, man, technology and just, like, the way things have looked and have just changed so much in the last 90-plus years. Oh, on film specifically, I suppose. I shouldn't say... Uh, although, I'm sure, I'm sure things look quite different in the real world compared to 100 years ago, too. People were still getting electricity installed in the 20s. Not yeah. everyone had it yet. <laughs> so... Yeah, but yeah, that is that's Metropolis. I guess we should uh, do the daunting thing of rating it. I always feel weird rating a movie like this because it's like so you know historically important, but you don't necessarily feel like you want to give it the rating of like a perfect score because it doesn't necessarily mean as much to you as your other favorites and things like that. So it's like, I, I find it difficult to rate a movie like this. But luckily, Tara has to go first. So. I'll give it a ten. Whoa, that easy. I mean, honestly, yeah, it was kind of easy to rate it from the beginning because it does feel special when you watch it and it is super relevant today. And I think the the history of it, I think, is also pretty fascinating. Um, just like when it came out and what it means to people, what it means to Germany. Like, it was a pretty, um, I think it's a pretty incredible movie and I'm okay giving it a 10. Yeah, I think I'm not going to give it a 10 because it's not Terminator. So <laughs> I've given other movies a 10. Shut up. Right? Not the Matrix. Like, you don't just get a 10 handed out from here, right? I'm no 10 slot, okay? Oh, what's the, what's the best sci-fi movie of the 90s? Oh, this 9.5 out of 10. <laughs> Not every decade has a 10. Not every decade has a 10. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I'm going to give it a nine, and I think the fact that, and the reason why, because I, I would agree that from a historical perspective, it is ultra important. It's a t if, if you're graded it on that scale alone, it obviously is a ten, and there's no dispute in that. I'm giving it a nine, and the fact that in 2023, almost said 2022, I'm, I'm not, it's, it's the second of January. I'm not used to be 2023 yet. <laughs> in 2023, the fact that it's only kind of like lost uh like a point by my gauge in that time period of like. Okay, how enjoyable is it to watch now? How relevant is it now? Uh, how effective is it to evoke feelings when I'm watching it? The fact that it's still a nine and it's only dropped a point in a hundred years is great. That's special. 
right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, I think you know uh, we we see this a lot about science fiction and how it kind of came into what we like about it really in the seventies. We like cheesy stuff in the fifties and sixties, but it, it really came into you know, we we moved on seventies seasons. We talk a lot about how films got a lot more experimental that that decade, and they're not all hits, right? Some of them are a little bit just you know not quite to where they, we would like them to get to but by the end of the decade you're getting star wars and alien you're getting these things and you know 80s is full of stuff 90s is full of stuff so on so on right and up to present day um this so so when i so i think a lot of movies from the 70s i don't even have to like have like a i don't have to like separate it like they feel modern to me like that's when movies started feeling modern and they feel like they sort of hit this this sweet spot of like this is where i think of modern cinema starting is the 70s um so so i don't have to like gauge it in any sort of way but stuff from before that there is kind of like stories were told differently you know when you watch a movie from the 40s you know romances feel a bit too quick or uh you know tension's done in a different way that doesn't really feel tense by today's stars it just feels kind of oh it's kind of fun and it's you know you accept it for what it is i think metropolis holds up surprisingly well even with some of its old school sensibilities, despite the fact that it predates most other movies that I've ever seen, right? You know, other than like Nosferatu and maybe like one other thing, uh, it's the oldest film I've seen. So, congratulations, nine out of ten, Metropolis. You got that Terrifier two rating. Congratulations. Are you trying to diminish my rating by comparing it to something? Else? Not all, not all ratings are equal. Okay, right? There's a scale, but just no. I just I think it's funny to say that. But just because I give one movie of a, a, a certain type, right. you know. Also, this is rich coming from you with the tens you've been handing out this year. Okay, but we're only in the second day. Oh well, twenty twenty two. You know what I mean? The last year. The tens have been flying at little green like ninja throwing stars. Oh yeah, talk about a masterpiece! Wow. <laughs> Do you know what Neil I mean, Breen? There Neil, is something no. very special about watching his films. Neil Breen, in many ways, is the exact opposite of of Metropolis in that Metropolis is doing so much in a time where none of it was there to be used and it all had to be created Neil Breen is someone who's in a time where all of the impossible is achievable and somehow he can do none of it <laughs> that's yeah, the beauty the of Neil Breen the ambition is the same right <laughs> <laughs> the ambition the vision there is there uh, yes he, with the right resources he can make a, a Black Panther movie but he chooses to make what he does because it's the art and the vision that's important to him. Uh-huh. Yes. And the when, message when you point that out he is the greatest hacker of all time. When you point out the Fritz Lang movie where Fritz Lang has cast himself as the world's best of anything, <laughs> then you can compare uh the, the the ambition. But there's an egotistical side to a Neil Breen slash Tommy Wiseau slash other yeah, directors but of that what like. you need to make to to make masterpieces everyone knows this it's the it's the common thread throughout all the geniuses of our time ego yes ego plus talent and one of those is definitely lacking how dare you you just don't <laughs> see it you don't see it it's behind the camera how did our no, metropolis sorry. review end with a comparison to neil breen like i mean it was, i think it was me that brought him up but it, like you've I, I knew better. I should have known better because it was instantly going to become a debating point <laughs> with you. So, 
Gotta defend my boy. He's coming out with a movie this year. Yes, Neil Breen, the actor slash director who is somewhere between 25 and 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on his uh, leading actress who he grew up with at the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that uh, that does it for Metropolis. Um, thank you very much. Uh, from, from one of the oldest, if not the oldest movie we'll ever review on the show to... Um, a movie from 2022 that we'll be uh, catching up on. We'll be looking at a Duel next week. Not the Steven Spielberg movie, Duel. Aww. <laughs> uh, Duel, D-U-A-L. Uh, we'll be looking at it next week, so uh, look forward to that, everyone. Catch okay. it up. Catch it I'm up still going to watch Duel, though. You can still watch Duel if you want as well. But, uh, we can compare I'll them. I'll do a nice comparison yeah. during the review. <laughs> but uh yeah that's what we're going to be doing next week uh thank you very much for joining us let us know what you think of metropolis if you've seen it in the comments below and you can support all the content over at patreon.com slash tv or be- becoming a youtube member you get a bonus episode every month at the five dollar tier on patreon or the like seven dollars on youtube for that tier i think but you get meltdown which is a, a monthly show where we talk about the movies we're watching over the month that weren't sci-fi plus we do a little sci-fi quiz to each other uh so that's the uh well we give each other so do each other we we do a sci-fi quiz to each other sounds really weird <laughs> sounds really threatening <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like some sort of like weird version of a solid I, I, i'll sci-fi quiz you <laughs> you won't see it coming eye clamps on from uh, <laughs> clockwork orange yes uh but yeah so so you can support uh those ways of course uh, you can also support free by simply liking subscribing uh sharing us on the social medias and all that kind of thing and of course rating the podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcast from five stars uh but that is uh that is the show uh so i'll also take this time to thank our patreon producers for the month so thank you very much to Tyler Hess, Cindy Pelicius, David Sharp, Borden now, Christopher Moy, David Brown, and Al Treisman. Thank you very much. So that's the show. That's the Atomic Cinema Experiment. Thank you very much once again for watching or listening. We always appreciate it. Keep watching science fiction and computer at Salsa. <laughs>